Chapter 6 Never mind that my dress, having been worn for four days, was creased and misshapen, my white gloves a sodden gray. Never mind that my fine hair must have been hanging like a horse's tail, in almost complete disarray. With all my eyes open as we crossed the ship's waist to the bowsprit and figurehead, I felt like a princess being led to her throne. Not even the same lowering mist I had observed when I first came to my cabin could dampen my soaring spirits. Captain Jaggery was a brilliant sun and I, a Juno moon, basked in reflected glory. Captain Jaggery, sir, I said, this ship seems to be moving very slowly. You observe correctly, he replied, ever the perfect gentleman. But if you look up there, he pointed beyond the mainmast, you'll notice a movement. The cloud cover should be breaking soon, and then we'll gain. There, you see? He exclaimed, the sun is struggling to shine through. And as if by command, a thin yellow disk began to appear where he had pointed, though it soon faded again behind the clotted clouds. From the forecastle deck we crossed, to the quarter deck, and then to the helm. Foley, a lean, bearded man, was at the wheel. Mr. Keach, as unsmiling as ever, stood by his side. The wheel itself was massive, with hand spikes for easier gripping. When the captain and I approached, the two men stole fleeting glances in our direction, but said nothing. Captain Jaggery released my arm and gazed up at the sails. At length, he said, Mr. Keach. The second, main, the second mate turned to him. Yes, sir? I believe, the captain said, we shall soon have a blow. Mr. Keach seemed surprised. Do you think so, sir? I hardly would have said so otherwise, now would I, Mr. Keach? The man darted a glance at me as if I held the answer. All he said, however, was, I suppose not, sir. Thank you, Mr. Keach. Now, I want to take advantage of it. Tighten all braces and be ready with the, j- with the jigger gaff. Aye, aye, sir and bring the studding sails to a hand. We may want them to make up for lost time. Aye, aye, sir. After another glance at me, Mr. Keach marched quickly across the quarterdeck and at the rail bellowed, All hands, all hands! Within moments, the entire crew assembled on the deck. Top gallant and royal yardmen in the taps, he cried. The next moment, the crew scrambled into the shrouds and standing rigging, high amidst the masts and spars. Even as they ascended, Mr. Keach began to sing out a litany of commands. Man topgallant, mast ropes, haul taut, sway and unfid, that men hauling on rushing lines and tackle until the desired sails were shifting and set. It was a grand show, but if the ship moved any faster for it, it didn't sense it. I didn't sense a change. The captain now turned to Folly. One point south, he said. One point south, Folly echoed and shifted the wheel counterclockwise with both hands. Steady on, the captain said. Steady on, Folly repeated. Now it was Mr. Hollybrass who approached the helm. The moment he did so, Captain Jaggery hailed him. Mr. Hollybrass, sir? As convenient, Mr. As convenient, Mr. Hollybrass, send Mr. Barlow to Miss Doyle. She needs to learn where her trunk was stowed. Yes, sir. 
Miss Doyle, the captain said to me, please be so good as to follow Mr. Hollybrass. I've enjoyed our conversation and look forward to many more. Then and there, beyond the eyes of the crew, he took my hand, bowed over it, and touched his lips to my fingers. I fairly glowed with pride. Finally, I followed, perhaps floated as a better word, after Mr. Hollybrass. Barely concealing a look of disdain for the captain's farewell to me, he made his way across the quarterdeck and stood at the rail overlooking the ship's waist. There he studied the men while they continued to adjust the rigging, now and again barking a command to work one rope or another. "'Mr. Barlow,' he called out at last. "'Here, sir,' came a response from on high, some sixty feet above where I saw the man. "'Get you down,' Mr. Hollybrass cried. Despite his decrepit appearance, Barlow was as dexterous as a monkey. He clambered across the foreyard upon which he had been perched, reached the mast, then the rigging, and on his narrow thread of rope he seemed to actually run until he dropped upon the deck with little or no sound. "'Aye, aye, sir,' he said, no more out of breath than I, or rather less than I, for I see, I see to him as such heights moving at high speeds had taken my breath away. "'Mr. Barlow,' Mr. Hollybrass said, "'Miss Doyle needs her trunk.' I understand you know where it is. I put it on top steerage, sir. Be so good as to lead her to it. Yes, sir. Barlow had not looked my way yet. Now, with a shy nod and a touch to his forelock, he did so. I understood I was to follow. The normal entry to the cargo areas is through the hatchway located in the center of the ship's waist. Since that was lashed down for the voyage, Barlow led me another way to a ladder beneath the mate's mess table in steerage just opposite my cabin door. After setting aside the candle he'd brought along, he scrambled under the mess table, then pulled open a winged hatch door that was built flush into the floor. Once he had his candle lit, I saw him twist about and drop partway down the hole. If you please, miss, he beckoned. Distasteful though it was, I had little choice in the matter. I crawled on hands and knees, backed into the hole, and climbed down twelve rungs, a distance of about eight or nine feet. Here, miss, Barlow sat at my side, next to the ladder. You don't want to ha- you don't want to go down to the hold. I looked beneath me and saw that the ladder continued into what appeared to be a black pit. More cargo, he explained. Rats and roaches, too, and a foul smell. That's where the brig is. Brig? The ship's jail. A jail on a ship? Captain Jaggery wouldn't sail without, miss. I shuddered in disgust. Ugh. Barlow held out one of his hard, gnarled hands. Reluctantly, I took it and did a little jump to the top cargo deck. Only then did I look about. It was a great whoop wood-ribbed cavern I had come to, which, because of Barlow's candlelight reached only so far, melted in the blackness fore and aft. I recall being stuck by the notion that I was Jonah-like in a belly of a whale. The air was heavy with the pervasive stench of rot that made me gag. What's that? I asked, pointing to a cylinder full 
from which pipes ran and to which handles were attached. The pump, he said, in case we take on the sea. In all directions, I saw the kinds of bales, barrels, and boxes I had seen upon the Liverpool decks. The sight was not a romantic one. These goods were piled higgity-piggity on top of one another, braced and restrained here and there by ropes and wedges, but mostly held in place by their own bulk. The whole reminded me of a great tumble of toy blocks jammed into a box. There's more below, Barlow said, observing me look about, but your trunk's over there. Sure enough, I saw it piled up on the alleyway, created by two stacks of cargo. Would you open it, please? I requested. Barlow undid the hasps and flung open the top. There lay my clothing, wrapped in tissue paper and laid out beautifully. The schoolmates had done a fine job. A sigh escaped my lips at this glimpse of another world. I can't take everything, I said. Well, miss, Barlow said, now that you know where it is, you could fetch things on your own. That's true, I said, and kneeling, began to lift the layers carefully. After a while, Barlow said, if it pleases, miss, might I have a word? You see, I'm very busy, Mr. Barlow, I murmured. For a moment, the sailor said nothing, though I was conscious of his nervous presence behind me. Miss, he said unexpectedly, you know I spoke out when you first arrived. I've tried to forget it, Mr. Barlow, I said with some severity. You shouldn't, miss. You shouldn't. His earnest pleading tone made me pause. What do you mean? Just now, miss, the captain put us on display. All that hauling and pulling, it was to no account, mocking us. Mr. Barlow, I interrupted. It's true, miss. He's abusing us. And you, mark my words, no good will come of it. I pressed my hands to my ears. After a moment, the man said, All right, miss, I'll leave you to it with the candle. You won't go on to the hold now, will you? I shall be fine, Mr. Barlow, I declared. Please leave me. So engrossed was I with my explorations of the trunk that I ceased paying him any attention. Only vaguely did I hear him retreat and ascend the ladder. But when I was sure he was gone, I did turn about. He had set the candle on the floor near where the ladder led further onto the hold. Though the flame flickered into a draft, I was satisfied it would burn a while. I turned back to my trunk. As I knelt there, making the difficult but delicious choice between this petticoat and that, searching too for a book suitable for reading to the crew as the captain had suggested, the sensation crept upon me that there was something else hovering about, a presence, if you will, something I could not define. At first I had tried to ignore the feeling but no matter how much I tried, it could not be denied. Of course, it was not exactly quiet down below. No place on a ship is. There was the everlasting creaks and groans. I could hear the sloshing of the bilge under the water hold, and in the rustling of all I preferred not to put a name to, such as the rats Barlow had mentioned. But within moments, I was absolutely certain, though, though I knew I could not tell, that it was a person who was watching me.
As this realization took hold, I froze in terror. Then, slowly I lifted my head and stared before me over the lid of the trunk. As far as I could see, no one was there. My eyes swept to the right, no one. To the left, again, nothing. There was but one other place to look, behind. Just the thought brought a prickle to the back of my neck until, with sudden panic, I whirled impulsively about. There, jutting up from the hole through which the hold might be reached, was a grinning head, its eyes fixed right on me. I shrieked. The next moment, the candle went out, and I was plunged into utter darkness.